Thelma Harrison died at the age of 96. When she was 73, the great-great-grandmother founded the Mama I Want to Read preschool initiative in one of Norfolk, Virginia's poorest neighborhoods. This free program helped prep children for kindergarten, a precursor to what we now know as universal pre-K here in the city. But back some years ago, Thelma said, I saw the need for this, and so she acted. Thelma's greatest love in life was helping others to help themselves, ultimately drawing local and national recognition, including an honorary doctorate from Old Dominion University and a Martin Luther King Jr. Award for Service to Humanity. And actually, hearing, and hearing that makes you think a bit differently about the whole idea of retirement, doesn't it? <laughs> for that matter, Thelma's commitments make you think about what really matters today. Or consider the story of Chad Padraki, who by the age of 23 had become disgusted by the trash and debris accumulating in his beloved Mississippi River, along which shores he had grown up. And one day he said to himself, in his words, I'm going to do something about this whole deal. Snubbed by the state of Illinois, Chad started up the Mississippi River Beautification and Restoration Project. And that first summer, he single-handedly picked up 45,000 pounds of trash in a 100-mile stretch. And his success led to the founding of the Living Lands and Waters, the 501c3 that is now worked on 24 rivers in 21 states with the help of more than, get this, 100,000 volunteers to remove more than 10 million pounds of debris. And along the way, he began the One Million Tree Project to help further the mission to preserve and restore our nation's major rivers and watersheds. I'm reminded of Margaret Mead's famous bit of wisdom. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. I don't know anything about Chad's spiritual perspective, but his embodied commitments place him firmly on the side of all that promotes life, dignity, and freedom. You hear his story, and you just wind up feeling better, more hopeful, and that it really does matter what one person decides. Every individual sitting in this room has agency. I can tell you a bit more about the details of Thelma's life. Though born in Norfolk, she moved to New York City when she was a child, ultimately becoming active in the civil rights movement as a congregant in Harlem's Abyssinian Church, Violet's old stomping ground. And she worked, for, she worked in nursing for 35 years at Lenox Hill Hospital, just a number of blocks up Park Avenue here, before returning to Norfolk 
It took eight years of retirement before she launched Mama, I Want to Read. The God of Resurrection Hope had formed her life. And hope is what inspires in each of these stories both unassuming and in some ways surprising persons to wake up one day and decide to make a difference. And initially, not a huge difference in the sense of the size and scope of their early efforts. One man hauling garbage out of a river, one old lady helping some neighborhood kids. Small gestures leading, nevertheless, to very significant outcomes. How does this happen? How does this happen? Why are some people life givers and others life takers? With so many more of us ambivalently situated somewhere in between. And is it possible to change from taker to giver? And there you have the essence of one of the tenets of healthy Christianity sprung from resurrection faith, which reveals that no dead-seeming thing is the last word on life. I'm supposing that's what draws the crowds out on Easter Sunday, that particular message. And it's a humdinger of a message, I'll I grant, grant you. That's the message that whacked the death-breathing persecutor Saul from his horse on his way to Damascus you heard J.P. read about earlier. It's a famous story. The persecutor Saul becomes the great apostle of resurrection faith, Paul. Towards the end of his ordeal, having been temporarily struck blind, the storyteller says that something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and his sight was restored, meaning he saw the truth. He finally got it. A dramatic example of a life taker transformed into life giver. Someone in the thrall of death given over to the vitality of life. It's a resurrection story. That's why we read it in the season of Easter. I'm thinking that it's a fair bet there are a few people present this morning who might say they know something about this sort of transformation. Maybe not as dramatic in the details, but nevertheless have shared something of the experience of thraldom to lesser dead things when a new sight was gained on the more excellent things and a new way was opened to them. As the beloved hymn puts it, they might sing, I was lost but now am found, was blind but now I see. A number of others of us have said to ourselves, man, I, I wish I could have such a moment of clarity. I wish I could know for certain about these things. Here's what I think, though. Everyone has access to breakthrough moments, but we have scales in front of our eyes. As Christian Wyman says, it may be falling in love or having a child. It may be the death of someone you love or a thwarted ambition. It may be just some tiny crack in consciousness that deepens so slowly over the years that by the time you notice it, it only takes a spilled drink or a missed flight to tear you and to tear it and you wide open. And then something like scales fall from our eyes. 
The hope that resurrection releases is a very powerful attractor, even for great doubters. Still, the razzle-dazzle, timpani-thundering, trumpet-proclaiming celebration on Easter Sunday inevitably gives way to the Monday following, and then Tuesday, Wednesday, and every other day of the week after, collecting into months of ordinary daily life. We return to old patterns and habits, same job, same friends and family, and so on. Which, as we heard in our gospel this morning, is the way it was for the disciples as well. As John told the story, all of the excitement of Easter had evidently worn off. They hadn't yet absorbed what it all might mean. So, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, and some others are at the seaside when Peter, without anything better to do, says, I'm going fishing. And the others tagged along. That's what they knew, resurrection or not. And why not go fishing? But here's the thing. They were going back to do what they had always done, but nothing was really the same as it was. It looked the same, felt mostly the same, yet now they knew something that could never be unlearned, something wild and profound. It was as though scales had fallen from their eyes in the days just after crucifixion. That's ultimately how they recognized Jesus as they did their work. There he was on the shore, helping them fish, and they shared breakfast. It's not very dramatic, is it? Mundane, earthy, human. They did what was before them to do, but now Jesus was among them, or should we say, risen life and manifest hope was there with them as they shared a bit of fish around a charcoal fire. It was breakfast, but then again, breakfast would never be the same. It was fishing they had been doing, but the fishing would never be the same. And in that pregnant with life, exceedingly hopeful space, a three times statement of love reverses Peter's three times betrayal in the courtyard of Jesus' trial. It's a quiet... It's quiet by the seaside. A little fishing, a little breakfast, but Peter is more alive than he has ever been in his life. You know, what strikes me about the stories of people like Thelma and Chad is that it seems they awoke one day into the same set of circumstances in which they had fallen asleep the night before. But with the morning light came a hopeful resolve. It was the same river that had always been friend and neighbor, and the same children in need of a hopeful start. What was different? From this distance, it seems that hope framed out their priorities. Hope caused them to act right where they were, not in some road to Damascus that was somebody else's backyard, but right in their own backyards, along the shores of the Mississippi and in the neighborhoods of Norfolk. By the way, friends, this is exactly why Christ Church invests 
in projects like Nido de Esperanza in Washington Heights, which means, by the way, nest of hope. This is a tangible expression of resurrection hope in our own backyard, our version of practicing what we preach, as in our Sunday, as is our Sunday sharing table and our partnership with the Methodist Church of Columbia and a number of other projects we've spawned and supported over the years. When worshiping the God of life, you can't help but wind up becoming life givers ourselves. This very time and place is like that seashore so many hundreds of years ago where the disciples went fishing. We all got up, had a cup of coffee, maybe a cup of tea, made our way to church. Some of us had more difficulty than others. But getting here from a certain vantage point turns out to be a pregnant with life, hope-filled space where persons can wake up to what has been right in front of them all along. Risen life, manifest hope, restoring, cleansing, and calling us out of everything that has the stink of death about it. Imagine if we acted on this truth. Imagine that. The possibilities honestly blow your mind. 